everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Today, I'm joined by the incredible Stephanie Kirkpatrick, founder and CEO of Orem. Orem is building new and frictionless financial infrastructure to power smart, real-time, and fully automated money movement across accounts, products, and financial institutions. And trust me, if payment rails and infrastructure sound like gibberish to you right now, you'll be a pro by the end of this episode. Founded in 2019, Orem went live with its first customer in just September of last year and is already processing tens of millions of dollars of transactions a month. They raised their $21 million Series A this April, led by the one and only Bain Capital Ventures, with participation from previous investors, including Inspired Capital, Homebrew, Accru, Primary, Clock Tower, and Box Group, in addition to new investors like SVB Capital and Amex Ventures, plus an angel network I'd personally die to be in a room with all at once. And just for some quick background on Stephanie, She's a certified financial planner who spent the previous decade building technology to optimize financial outcomes for Americans. She led advice strategy, correlated product development, and a number of other things at LearnVest, the financial planning fintech company later sold to Northwestern Mutual. And as you may recall, LearnVest was founded by another incredible previous Wharton FinTech podcast guest, Alexa Von Tobel, now Inspired Capital. Stephanie is a super mom of two girls and shares more of her life hacks at the end of the episode that you don't want to miss. But before that, we discuss Stephanie's earliest steps when taking the plunge into starting a company, why Orem started in stealth, the history of payment rails and infrastructure and why there is so much friction in the system, how the burden of ACH risk ultimately lands on the end user, whether by non-sufficient funds and overdraft fees or other reasons, her advice on looking for stage-specific and sector-specific investors, but most importantly, screening for good humans, the great advice she got from Satya Patel at Homebrew on hiring ahead of people, her impressive Whoop record, and so, so much more. So with that, let's get started. Stephanie, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are so excited to have you here. How are you? Ali, thanks for having me. I'm great, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Us too. Are you still based in New York these days? I have stayed in New York, although as Orem is a remote first company, I feel the draw back to my roots on the West Coast, especially coming off of a long, cold winter. So we'll see, but definitely still in New York, living the dream uh, in the suburbs outside of New York City. Good for you. I, I like to think that I would have been a diehard and stayed had not been moving to Philly for business school, but um, I obviously respect that you actually did it. Well, I've been eagerly awaiting this conversation and no, I'm not alone on that. Specifically, I want to give shout outs to Alexa Von Tobel, Annie, and the rest of the Inspired Capital team, as well as Hugh Meyer of Highline Wealth Partners and host of the Money Talks podcast, who each independently recommended you for our podcast. Little did they know Orem was already on our wish list, but a big thanks to both of those teams for putting us in touch. I know you have great relationships with both. Indeed, we do. Yeah. So needless to say, you already have a ton of fans and you'll hopefully pick up droves more from today's episode, but I want to kick off starting at the beginning. So you were a certified financial planner for many, many years and did a bit of what sounds like everything at LearnVest from advice strategy to product and operations development. So just help us understand a bit more about your life and career prior to Orm. 
Yeah. So it's so interesting, right? Because people go, a certified financial planner and you're building payments infrastructure that feels disconnected, but it's actually really connected because as I started my career and I became a certified financial planner, actually, before I was at LearnVest, the very first thing that happened that got me into sort of tech and, and into building was, and I tell the story because I think, you know, as listeners go like, oh, it's so hard to break in. Here's how you think about it. I was at a small boutique retirement consulting firm before LearnVest, before tech, before all this stuff, right? And the CD-ROM that we used to get to like do our financial planning for our customers stopped coming from Oppenheimer Funds. It was like this free thing. And the business sort of panicked. It was like, oh my gosh, we use that for everything. Wow. And I raised my hand and I was like, I have a calculator and I think it's just math, right? It's just time value of money. I can build it. And I went to our CEO at the time and I said, give me a $10,000 budget and I'll build it. And I did. I went on Elance, which I know sounds crazy now. Uh, <laughs> and I found an American who'd moved to India. I was building a dev shop. And I called him up and told him what I wanted, retained him for the project. And for a number of months thereafter, um, started building. And that is actually how I ended up meeting Alexa Von Tobel at then LearnVest and getting recruited to come over was because I sort of had my hands already in, little did I know, like an offshore project um, to build something. We built uh, a product there called Retire Ready, ended up selling it. And then as I went to LearnVest, I did touch a little bit of everything. A lot of it was product-based. And after we sold LearnVest to Northwestern Mutual, I had this incredible aha, which is that we always wanted to build implementation, right? Like everybody says yes to the advice. People would love to pay off student loans, even if just a little bit faster. Of course, you don't want to have credit card debt. Yes, you would love to save for a wedding or a trip to Hawaii. Of course, you want to get on track for retirement. These are not like no's. Perfect incentive alignment. Exactly. And we got the advice to a place where now six and a half million households at Northwestern Mutual get these great financial plans. And the challenge has always been getting people to execute. And I don't think it's about behavior change. I think it's about changing the infrastructure. Because why don't we move money instantly? Well, we can't. Would I be more convinced to put my money in a high-yield savings at you know Amex that's separate from where I bank with Wells Fargo if I could just get it back instantly on a Sunday? You bet. But I'm not incentivized to do that right now because it's going to take three, maybe five days for that money to move back into my hands when I feel like I need it. And so you find that people actually don't do very simple things. And further, they really wish everything was automated. And so I want to build the easy button for your financial life. And I want Orem's infrastructure that we embed into other financial institutions to make money smart, real-time, and fully automated. I think if we wake up in a couple of years and money moves instantly and it's free to do that, we don't pay extra to get money out of Venmo instantly or out right. of anyone Imagine the financial products that are going to get built when money is actually smart, real-time, and fully automated, and it doesn't cost extra for that. So that's why we exist, right? We want to build the infrastructure that actually changes the underbelly of the financial system so that we can unlock this next generation of financial innovation. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I I want to start again with the earliest days. So you have this potentially revolutionary idea for this new company. You're preparing to take the plunge, but can you just take us back to those first few weeks or days? What were some of your first steps that you needed to lock down, either who you wanted to consult or what operational items you wanted to have situated? But what was the transition like to becoming a founder? Because I think, you know, we fast forward sometimes through that, you know, critical step of, you know, taking the plunge. So curious sort of what you remember about those earliest days. Well, taking the plunge was scary. And I think not without some thought, right? Because I had this idea in my head or an idea that I wanted to solve something. 
I always thought, hey, I'm a really great number two. So I wasn't entirely sure that I'd be a founder, at least not at that moment. On the other hand, I was like, oh, I really want to be a CEO. So I was working somewhere to like fill skills gaps and you know do things I wanted to do to get there. And as Alexa and I actually had coffee at Grey Dog and started talking about the idea, she was like, let's do this. I'm going to write you an inspiration check from Inspired Capital. And at first I was like, I mean, yes, of course. And then also no, because like that sounds scary and hard. And alone. <laughs> like, you know, I don't think that founders just jump off a cliff. I do think that like you go through more emotion than people ever talk about. And in the early days, you're literally by yourself, unless you have a co-founder. But you're, you go from being in like a job, a career that's busy and full and meetings and like clarity on where you're going kind of at least and things to do and outputs to being like blank piece blank of paper. page. Yeah. Nobody's sitting next to you and like a massive problem you want to solve, but you're not exactly sure how. Right. And so what I did is I really started asking some key questions and I talked to a bunch of advisors. So Bobby Mehta, who's the former CEO of TransUnion. Mike Vaughn, who's the former COO of Venmo. And an ex-podcast guest for us. And, and a guest. Um, Shout out. And also a Philly, Philly fellow. I talked to investors who had been looking at the fintech landscape. I called all my friends who were working inside of Betterment, Acorns, TransferWise, right? You name it. Because the LearnVest crew had gone lots of places. Yields. Right. Started really thinking about if we were going to automate money movement, what was it going to take? And what are the pain points? And what I learned is that the pain points had to do with like really three things. One is everything moves on ACH and it's slow and frictionful. And so I learned why. I learned that data and money move on different rails at different speeds. So that's a problem. And then I learned that the world had come up with, or the Fed had come up with real-time payments, RTP, in 2017. And now it's like, I'm in late 2019 while we're thinking about this. And their website says they're going to be... Where's the traction? Yeah. So they're going to be fully rolled out by the end of the year. And they were at like 20 banks. And today, actually, you know, of the 11,500 financial institutions, there's only about 100 that can do real-time payments and actually only about 25 that can send and receive. So while the thesis was there to do it real-time, they're there to get people to adopt it wasn't. So that started to inform that there was opportunity for friction to be solved. Then the question was, do you build a consumer app? which is my background, uh, not learn best V2, but a solution where you bank with us and everything's automated. Right. Or do you build the infrastructure? And the reason I thought that if we built the app versus the infrastructure, I ultimately said, we're not going to reach enough people. For this to really change American wallets, to change the underpinnings of the system, it has to be infrastructure. And I saw that you know, time and time again at Northwestern Mutual, they didn't lack for the desire to innovate. They had key systems that were um, outdated parts of infrastructure that made it hard to innovate. So I thought, how could we use APIs, machine learning, embeddable solutions that could get financial services to a place where money is real time and do it in a way that doesn't necessitate a 50 to $500 million sort of like overhaul and upgrade. And so that was the beginning. We were like sharing offices with Inspired, we, me, (laughs) there was no one. And then slowly a team started to form around me, folks I've worked with before. Um, advisors came to the table and, you know, it sounds cliche, but certainly some whiteboarding, a lot of phone calls and a lot of, frankly, spreadsheets to do some math on what could work. What is it going to cost? Is it viable? How does it work? So that's really what the beginning looked like. I think it has this feeling of being both like overwhelmingly hard and underwhelmingly slow in so much as like you're so used to producing decks and day in, day out. And now what you're producing is like a thesis. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so that was what the beginning felt like. Um, and, and we laughed because, you know, we bounced around so many offices. We didn't have permanent space. I mean, it was the classic startup story in some ways. We didn't have any money in the bank. And so many people took my phone calls. So many friends of friends, so many cold intros. So many people cared to answer my questions, to help educate. Wow. And that is why Orem exists. And I am so grateful for that. Oh, that's so amazing to hear. And obviously speaks to sort of the brand reputation that you'd built for yourself over the, the many years. So I want to double click into one of those, you know, you talked about spreadsheeting and trade-offs and sort of analysis of the opportunity set and basically the scale that you'd have to reach to make this successful and make this live up to what you wanted. So why start in stealth? You know, you, you have to get the message out and you have to, you know, make this grand mission. But so why, why start sort of secretly? You know... I actually loved the stealth mode. We're out of it now. Hence, I can do these podcasts and I love doing them. But when I'm doing an hour-long podcast talking about the business, I'm not in the business. And when you're solving a fundamentally complex problem like we are solving, when you are building a team during COVID, we did all of this in a remote setting. I've never met more than 50% of the team. There are 50 employees in 15 states. There are executives that I have never met in person. I've never met a single investor except Alexa. you have to work really hard both to overcome that scenario and importantly, not to lose sight of what matters. And what matters is moving towards deploying your first MVP, listening to your first customers and understanding if you have product market fit and what it's going to take to get there. And so we took the approach that what we're building is so big and the world's going to be so interested in it that if we can stay in stealth mode while we figure it out, when we come out on the other side, we will have household name brand customers, which we do. We will have the beginnings of product market fit so we can harden the product, which we have. We will already have a team built that wanted to be here because they cared about the problem, not because they want to work at the sexy biggest name in fintech. Right. Um, and, and that matters to the culture we're building uh, because you have to care about the problem above all else. And I think importantly, stealth mode also allowed us to be under the radar of anyone who might be thinking about this so that we can come in hot with what we're doing. Does self-mode work for everybody? Maybe, maybe not. There was a really important component for me that we could, I could spend a significant amount of time in the business and develop our values and a value system without any distraction. And now that is the heartbeat of what we do. Um, it show up with curiosity, lead with good vibes and good intentions, Owners get things done, done, done. We all own a piece of Aurum. And diversity of thought through diversity of people. We invested super early in our DEI initiatives. We invested super early in having a head of people before we were even 20 employees. And so by not being out in the world trying to have a big brand halo, we were actually able to be in the business, making it mature, healthy, making the product work well, getting great customers and learning a ton. So that then when you hear us talk, it's interesting, right? There's something to say. I love that. I think that's such a disciplined approach. I think the the founders that are inevitably listening to this episode are that's great food for thought for them. And it it all comes down to focus to your point and sort of, you know, eliminating the distractions. And I want to get to that in terms of culture building, eventual fundraising and all the road showing and sales that came thereafter, but quickly talk more about just the Orem product set. So talk about, you know, the MVP, what what have you built so far? What have been your marquee products? I know you have two that are launched. So just tell us more about each. Yeah, so what I always say about Orem is we are to money movement, what Amazon is to same day delivery, right? We make sure money gets there instantly. That's all you have to care about. 
you don't care if your package comes FedEx, DHL, UPS, D, like any of the right. And actually, maybe FedEx thinks UPS is a competitor and vice versa. But when you aggregate the whole system, Amazon just sees those all as avenues. That's how we think about banks and rails, right? Whether it's wire, ACH, real-time payment, card networks, blockchain settlement, tokenized payments. We don't see those as competitors. We see those as vehicles for which money can move. And the way we're building the back end of Orem is to have one product that's focused on real-time risk management. In particular, it's designed to support ACH and it's called Foresight. Foresight is a pre-authorization, just like a credit card swipe checks before you buy Starbucks coffee. Do you or don't you have the money? Now, they don't actually transact instantly. The merchant still gets paid a couple of days later, but they get confirmation instantly that the money will come. We designed that same thing for ACH. Today, ACH's data shows up three days later, and then there's 60 days of risk still open for more returns to come in that are fraudulent. That's a very backward system in an instant economy, right? That is never going to work to go to get us forward. And so we said, what if you don't change the core, you don't change a lot of the underpinnings yet, you just make an API call and we give you the probability of return of T plus three settlement risk of T plus 60 fraud risk. What would you do differently if you had that? So that's been a huge unlock because real-time risk management is the only way you can get to real-time payments. And then momentum is the entire portfolio of rails and banks and card networks that moves money. You call a single API, you parameterize as an enterprise with us, speed, risk, cost, day of the week, whatever your SLAs are. And we put those through our marketplace and through our smart routing so that it goes instantly from point A to point B for Allie, for Stephanie, in a way that the customer never has to think about, the enterprise never has to think about. So forget doing five integrations to different sets of rails. Forget becoming approved by a bank, going through 18 months of diligence. Like This is a very simplified way um, and a very smart way to get at the infrastructure and be fully future-proofed. When FedNow comes online, we'll be interoperable. Same ISO standard as RTP. You don't have to build to that. We've already built it. So it really changes the way you think about what is real-time payments. And we also offer liquidity as a service. So similar to how Venmo works, I can Venmo you 100 bucks, Ali, and you can take it out instantly, Venmo someone else, spend it on the debit card. Venmo doesn't have Stephanie's $100. And so they're making a risk-adjusted decision. We do that in our momentum platform using the foresight data And we can provide up to five days of advanced funding for a transaction so that it can be real-time, even on a weekend, when real-time pull maybe isn't available. Um, So it makes the system work 24-7, 365 in a way that's never been done before with real-time risk management, with real-time ledgering, with real-time reconciliation, and with real-time data. It's it's unbelievable. I think financial infrastructure takes a bit of time to unpack. So I want to even take a step further back for the non-payments junkies who know less about the history of payment rails and the antiquated tech that supports many of them. Can you explain where the friction comes from that you're trying to eliminate and just give us a sense of the size of this issue that you're tackling? Size of the issue is massive. Okay. $62 trillion of money moved via ACH. It's our most ubiquitous form of money movement. I know maybe it feels common that you swipe your credit card a lot, but actually every mortgage, every car loan payment, every lease payment, you know, the vast majority of like insurance products and you want to reload money to your Coinbase account, that's done via ACH. Like you're eventually buying crypto, but like you want money in Robinhood, that's ACH. Literally makes the whole US financial system go round and it's growing um, from a transaction volume perspective by over 8% a year. So it's a big problem getting bigger as we get off of cash and checks, which by the way, decades later, we're still not off of, right? right? 
So you think we're going to get off of the thing we're addicted to on ACH, that's $62 trillion. That's probably more than a decade. So we need to make sure that we're supporting ACH to be fundamentally better at managing risk and taking friction out. The way ACH works today is to have a transaction run and then wait three days. And at the three-day mark, you will have received what's called a return code. Think of that as data. It's confirmed that Ali did or did not have the funds. Well, that's where the friction starts because now banks are holding on to that for risk management reasons because they don't know if they should release the money. They can't identify the difference between the risk of Stephanie and Ali, so they just hold it for so they wait. They wait. Yeah. Now, if you did that by chance at like 5 p.m. on a Friday of a holiday weekend, oof, that's not going to be three days. That's going to be five or seven. So banks don't work at night. The cutoff for ACH is like fairly early evening, Eastern time, and it doesn't work on the weekends. I mean, sure, you can go to the bank, I guess, and get money out of the ATM, but like we're really broken when it comes to getting money off bank hours. So that's a big part of the friction. The other part of the friction that we're solving for is is simply adoption. Because real-time payments exists, you have to ask the question, why didn't it get more widely adopted? Well, the friction there is that um, it requires 24-7 operations, 24-7 support, a pre-funded account with the Fed, a whole bunch of technical changes. And vast majority of banks in our country are small. Community banks support us, you know, between JP Morgan and Wells Fargo, everybody in between is a community bank. <laughs> and so those guys rely on Jack Henry and Pfizer for their technology upgrades. They don't have a fintech knocking on their door saying, here, let us help. Um, so we're really excited to think about how to both change the friction of the actual system and to importantly use our innovation to get to all of the financial institutions, not just the big ones, who frankly can innovate themselves you know, fairly well today. Like, of course, JP Morgan has real-time payments. So it's a really interesting problem because it is a combination of both existing 50-year-old frameworks of how we thought about things and reticence to move to a new thing because the constraint to spend money to be open 24-7, to build technology to do ledgering 24-7. Ledgering is like keeping track, right? Um, right. That's stuff Orem has handled. So I think it's going to be really, really fun as we continue to grow our portfolio of customers and really see, well, once we give you real-time payments, what do you build with it? Yeah, absolutely. To, to that point, now we understand a little bit more of the technical side and sort of the cultural friction elements. So thanks for that clarification. But can you also help us understand why slow money movement becomes, I think these are even your words, the burden of the everyday person, which from what I understand is actually why you started the company. So help us understand why this falls on the consumer in the end. Yeah. I mean, I, because I'm a financial planner, right? Like I, I cringe when I think about why are we passing on costs to people who have less, right? Of course, I'd love automation for people who are just busy. I'd love like all the things in your financial life to just be on autopilot. But where I'd really love that is for people who have very little, and we want to give them an opportunity to have more. And the way the system is set up today, if over three days, you have done one ACH transaction, but it hasn't settled, you are essentially for three days kind of at risk that when that does settle, you won't have money available. That's called a non-sufficient funds or NSF problem that creates an overdraft event. And so banks are charging 11, depends on who you ask. $11 billion, up to $30 billion in fees, just due to an antiquated system that just doesn't provide adequate knowledge about the transaction. And so it makes it really challenging for folks who have very little, who maybe had one small $5 transaction that resulted in $75 of overdraft fees that day, 
ever dig out, right? And then separately, why should I have to be the one to think like, oh, don't forget, Steph, don't forget there was $100 pending to pay, you know, your Verizon bill. Don't forget that when you like go buy groceries. <laughs> like that system relies, it puts the burden on the consumer and the consumer doesn't know how to do it. And the consumer is lacking the opportunity for what is essentially easy math to be in play for them. What if every time I had spent $50, $1 went towards my investment account automatically for anyone? What if um, every time I get paid at the end of each day, because let's assume that we're not going to get paid every two weeks anymore, it will literally be real-time pushed to my bank account, that 2% is always used for some type of debt repayment, which debt it goes to changes depending on my highest interest rate debts. Right? These rules, those are easy to create implementation on a system that is waiting three to five days is not going to work. So it has to be real time in all directions. And that's when we have a chance to actually automate the American wallet and take households that are hoping to do more, eliminate the fees, eliminate the cost for real-time payments, and actually let them do more with what they have today in a way that decreases debt, increases the ability to grow and generate even moderate small amounts of wealth via investing. And to have access to their own income and their liquidity at the time in which they need it, not two weeks later, right? So I think we'll see ultimately that we don't need early wage access or or payroll advanced products. We will just get paid in real time. You'll see the same thing change for small businesses. Supply chains will change. You know, this isn't just about consumers, but my heart is always in it for the consumer, um, for the person on the other side of a financial plan or the person on the other side of a big financial decision who, who doesn't have the guidance and ultimately doesn't have the support they need. So that's why Orem actually ended up existing. It's really an extension of that career as a financial planner, the eight years at LearnVest, thinking all day long about helping people do more and then closing the gap on how they actually do it in a way that's fully automated. There's so many app points in there. I want to give Nick Milanovic some cred because he said this the same idea really perfectly. He said the ability to access money instantly versus waiting a day or a weekend is disproportionately important to poor people. So I think, you know, you've outlined a lot of the examples where some of us have the luxury of we can wait a few days and we probably won't hit an NSF, but it's a major problem. And and to your point, if banks are making that much money off it, clearly, you know, it's a much bigger problem than I think people even really understand. But super interesting because, again, we're saying that everyday consumers are the ultimate beneficiaries of this safer, faster, more automated financial system. You know, we talk about the UX of the future, this self-driving money, and we, you know, sometimes forget to talk about the the infrastructure required in order to, you know, to make that a reality. But I want to plug into the fact that Orem actually sells B2B, right, to the fintechs and the financial institutions who facilitate these money movements. And you have clients ranging from the SoFis of the world to 157-year-old First Horizon banks with rumblings of a very long wait list. So what's the winning sales pitch to the business that will then ultimately serve its consumers using a product like Orem? Well, it's such an interesting question when I think about the winning sales pitch, because as kind of the current only salesperson in the room, I find myself having a lot of really different conversations. But what I ultimately find is when we say, listen, we can reduce fraud and NSFs by 50%, we can likely identify up to 85% of transactions that could actually be credited instantly at no risk to you. And we can see that customers who get instant funding for accounts that they open or for recurring deposits do 3x more transactions over time. This sort of aha moment that like we can grow a business faster, more efficiently with lower cost or more effective cost of acquisition 
and we can manage risk better at the same time. Because usually those are opposing, right? Risk management is like, no, 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 no. Low loss, low loss, low loss. And growth is exactly. like, no, 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 no. we get to marry those two things. So um, I think that's you know a big part of it. I think the other part of it is for the financial institutions who are already on the bleeding edge, and that does not have to be fintechs. It can be like First Horizon and others, Silicon Valley Bank and other partners that we work with. It can be just about, we know where the world's going and we don't want to be the last bank there. We want to be the first bank there. Because if we're the first bank to real-time payments or one of the early banks, we can build better products and services. And that's how we're going to grow and differentiate. Whether that's for commercial bank partners, whether that's for their retail bank customers. So I think it's really about you know both finding the right people at the right moment in time in the market and ultimately understanding what makes them tick. Do they want growth? Do they want risk management? Do they want faster funding? Do they want lower technology overhead? Do they want future proofing or redundancy? Like what are they struggling with? And making sure that, you know, it's a consultative consultative sales process, not just to show up and throw up, as some say, to like tell you everything, um, but to really learn how does your business work differently than others that we've seen and what do you most need help with and can we help? Um, and, and usually the answer is yes. I love that expression, show up and throw up. I haven't actually heard that one, but I'm going to have to incorporate that. I one of our integration engineers because he gave me, he was like, I think you could change that pitch a little. <laughs> and, and, and he was right. And, and we're working on it, right? Um, every day. I'm sure. So let's let's drill into another element of the pitch, which, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a tough question. I'm sure you've been asked most likely by investors or others that are thinking, you know, well into the future, not how can you solve, you know, my problem today, but... What are your takes on the competitive fixes that are brewing? It doesn't seem to me, but correct me if I'm wrong, like you have many sort of direct competitors, but rather the biggest risk seems to be that ACH eventually becomes obsolete, you know, or some of these rails eventually sort of go out of turn or out of style. It's worth caveating that, you know, you clearly mentioned that ACH is the most ubiquitous payment channel currently, and the pandemic has led to multiple record-breaking days of network traffic on it this year. But we've also talked about some of the alternatives in the works, including mainstream digital currency adoption, blockchain-powered real-time transfers like Ripple, and we'll even lob in, you know, knowing full well it's probably the least threatening, but the Fed working on its FedNow instant payment service that it plans to launch in 2020, 300 years from now, or whenever that will be. So which of these do you sort of consider to be real threats? I know you sort of talked about a little bit about, you know, the layer you're creating makes you somewhat neutral, but... What are the real threats to the model and how are you sort of thinking about, you know, the three to five to 10 years out? Yeah. I mean, it's such a, a really a fast moving landscape because in the time in which we've been working on Orem, I don't think there was like another ACH startup or RTP startup before us. Like there, there were other people thinking about money movement differently like Ripple, but in a very short period of time, there's been a lot of eyes on ACH. E-commerce platforms are looking to incentivize you to get 20% off if you pay with your bank so that they don't have to have interchange on card networks. Like there's some really interesting sort of shifts back to like, oh, let's go back to this thing that only costs a penny. But we can only do that if we can manage risk in real time. So again, we don't see ACH going anywhere anytime soon. When we think about FedNow, when we think about um, any digital currency adoption, I think three things come to mind. First of all, the question of like, how quickly does it get here? Um, how fast and what are the requirements to actually utilize it? Fed now, just like RTP, has much of the same problems. You must operate at least some portion of your bank or business 24-7, 365. 
because people will be moving money 24 seven, 365. You have to move to a new ISO standard, ISO 2022, which is not what is used for ACH, which is a batch-based flat file exchange. You have like, so it's technologically different, which means that in order for there to be widespread adoption, you need fintechs like Aurum who make the connection to these new systems easy, right? So we, I said this before, but we see ourselves as Amazon and we see all of these different tools as assets in our toolkit and types of rails that we leverage. And if everybody runs to wires because we end up liking that best, great. We're a little bit agnostic to which wire, which I'm sorry, which rail is best and ultimately think about making sure that we are interoperable with every significant form maybe not checks, but every other significant form of digital uh, currency transaction domestically so that when we think about how do we get money from point A to point B instantly, we can have the Amazon model of saying, maybe this one's local delivery and that one's DHL and this one's FedEx. Depends on where it's coming from, how big is the transaction, what's the risk, where is it going? So we love the innovation and look forward to seeing actually more rails become available that super serve certain specific use cases that we can support so that when you integrate with us, you have all the options, right? You have all the flavors. And we have more opportunity and more tools in our toolkit to make real-time uh, possible, not just through the existing sort of options today. So net-net, this would never make Orem obsolete. It's a different layer of the stack, neutral, happy to partner and sort of enable all of those solutions. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's a good place to be. I want to completely switch gears and talk about some of, you know, not talk about maybe some skepticism or some, you know, counterfactuals, but talk about some of your biggest supporters. So you raised a $5 million seed round and $21 million series A round, both during the pandemic, as you mentioned, and attracted some of the best venture investors in the business, including Bain Capital Ventures, Homebrew, Box Group, SVB Capital, and a number of our previous podcast guests, including Alexa Von Tobel's Inspired Capital and Clock Tower Technology Ventures, among others. So I want to keep this one open-ended. I know you've shared some thoughts on navigating conflicting advice recently on the Talks Time podcast. So I'll just generally ask what you've learned about the fundraising journey and advice you have to future founders. You know, you've named some incredible names on that list and we are so fortunate. We also have eight crew capital, primary ventures, and a few others that we're just so proud of, right? The opportunity to work with the best in the business has really been game-changing for Aurum. I think what you learn in the journey, I mean, well, you learn a lot. I could say lots of things here, but I think one thing you learn is that you are making a decision that is going to stay with you for a very long time, for as long as you are building the company. Once somebody's on your cap table, they're always on your cap table. And as you've mentioned other podcasts and things where I've talked about this, my advice is always to think about three things. To think about the stage at which you are raising. There are funds that will write a check at seed stage, but they are seed stage funds. And the distinction is the amount of support, A, that you're going to get, and B, the knowledge of seeing hundreds of other companies at this exact moment in time and what made them succeed or fail. What are the blind spots? I would much rather learn faster by hearing somebody else's challenge at this stage or at a minimum feel okay that the challenge I'm seeing is pretty normal and to be expected. Some of them you can't solve without living through them. So I think stage specific is very important. When you get a little further out, it matters less, but at the very beginning, your first two years is whether or not you survive. And so if you don't think a lot about how much time will that investor spend with you to coach you, to help you do a job you've never done before, 
to build a team around this problem rapidly, um, in, in our case, remotely. So that for me had a lot of weight and, and is a learning I share often. The other perspective I have is that it is very sector specific, at least for us. If the partner at the fund doesn't know ACH or real-time payments or payments infrastructure or the difference between you know, what's happening on the card network side versus what's happening in FedNow, I'm dead because I'm relying on this person to continue to grow me in terms of how I think about maybe the macro perspective on the opportunity and importantly, to connect into their network. So in stealth mode, since you don't have marketing and you don't have organic ways of acquiring clients, you do it through word of mouth and introductions. So the folks on your cap table need to be really aligned to be able to get you access to the first companies you're going to work with and sector specific is important. And then the third variable, which I hope everyone can, can, can benefit from hearing is just good humans. It is hard to be a founder. It is lonely and isolating sometimes. I can call my mom. She will answer, but she doesn't know the answer, right? And so when you're having your hardest day, you need to be able to call one of these people, maybe all three of them, whoever's on your board, and ask for help and say, I don't know. I'm stuck. You need to be able to call them and share an amazing win. Again, my mom will be always be happy for me, but she doesn't really know some of the day-to-day, and, and these folks do. I'm about to do a really big deal with a great partner, and I'm not sure how to structure it economically. These guys can help, right? You're not alone. If you don't ask questions of your investors, once they're on your cap table, you're not getting the value of having them, right? It's not about the money. It's literally not. It's can you execute? And your investors should be there by your side helping you execute. Since we did it during COVID, I didn't meet any of the investors. I did know Alexa. I still have not met um, those investors. and, And that's pretty wild. All of our board meetings continue to be remote. And I'm sure I will someday have a meal um, with most of these, hopefully all of these folks. But my advice there, um, because it continues to be a method of fundraising, is to be just really well-practiced and technologically ready to exist over screen, over camera, to um, do your homework on people in advance, know where they went to college, know their backgrounds, know who's connected to whom, know what companies they've been invested in previously. Just have a baseline, just like you would in person. and to make sure that you aren't distracted by the technology and you can get yourself into the room and into their heads as easy as possible. I love Zoom because Zoom gives you everybody's name. So when you're in a partner meeting in person, you're like, I think I remember who that was, right? This is like the meme tags. When you're in Zoom, you actually have this huge benefit. You can see Allie, you can see Stephanie and you can tell who they are. A few times you can't, maybe people are, you know, offline on phone or whatever, but it gives you actually some superpower. So lean into that, right? And practice. Do not show up for a pitch that you haven't practiced. <laughs> I love that. There's so much sage advice in there. I, I love the idea of just also you get in, you get out what you put in, right? Yeah. And it doesn't stop with the check. And I think sometimes we we glorify, you know, the press release and we don't talk about sort of the next step. So I think that's amazing to hear. I think to your point of just being versatile and leaning into the, the current opportunities that I imagine that's what investors, you know, first and foremost, are looking to see. So the fact that you can adapt and, you know, see the opportunity in Zoom versus, you know, IRL, it's, it says a lot about you. Within the backdrop of talking about the market that you're in, your customer base, your investors, competitors, all the other influences we've discussed, I want to talk about what it's like to actually work at Aurum. Um, you mentioned having 50 employees, you know, not having met a lot of the executives. It's all happened during the pandemic. So 
And you talked a lot about some of those guiding principles in the early days of buying into the mission above sort of all else. But as it relates to recruiting, hiring, talent development, what have those guiding principles been that, you know, you mentioned that you were able to sort of focus on, particularly while you're in stealth without sort of the distractions? Where, where did that land you? Well, it landed us in a place that I'm super proud of. And I am actually so grateful that the quarantine situation forced us and allowed us to open our eyes to the, there being a different path. One in which I'm happier and healthier, more connected as a parent, as a wife, um, as a daughter. My mom is very close in my life in a way that like, if I fast forward what we were going to be, it would have been fun and it would have been amazing, but it would have been different. And it would have been very stereotypically startup life. And we're not the stereotypical startup. There are um, over 50% of the company identifies as female, over 50% identifies as non-white. And I forget the exact number, but it's, I think, greater than 40% are parents, men and women, and more coming. And that's pretty unusual, right, for our stage, both all of the diversity that we have, but in particular, the parental piece. And I think it's because, you know, when we were thinking about our head of product, I'm sorry, our head of people um, coming in early, we said, we're going to be 100 people in 12 months. We better start at 20. And this is actually great advice from Satya Patel at Homebrew, who sort of gave me the permission to hire a few people early. Permission as in like, you think you don't need them till later. And he's like, I can tell you the number one thing you will want with a high growth company is ahead of people. And our head of people walked in the door and immediately changed the ability for us to go out and recruit really well, build a great candidate experience work on an employee engagement model, build a DEI program. It's all early, but because we did that, I think we've attracted better people. Our retention is through the roof. And we've done things like gender-blind paid parental leave. We've done things like sponsoring you for um, one trip per year on Orem's dime to go to any city to work with any colleague for three nights. Wow. allow you to just work differently And we allow you to do things here that I think meet people where they are in life. And our values, they were defined very early, right? And they are part of our hiring. They're part of our reviews and the way we think about, we award people at the end of each week for good vibes and good attentions or showing up with, you know, curiosity, like there's a, your golden, you know, award at the end of the week. And I think that just speaks to weaving in these cultural aspects Um, we actually plan to publish all of our remote work philosophies. We get asked all the time, how did you do it? Listen, it's not perfect, um, but we work on it every week. We think about it all the time. And there are people that have defaulted to remote work that after some period of reopening may choose another path. But there are people who are opting in to remote work. And that is where we are really attractive. And we have the most exceptional talent in so many parts of the country which brings great storytelling. It brings great food analogies. It brings great culture. So many people on the first day when they introduce themselves describe where they were born and it's not in America, right? And so it's just so cool to have this group of people. Um, You'll have to ask the employees what it's really like. Uh, (laughs) We are very, very excited about the chance to do this in a way that I know hasn't been done often. I think Zapier, Get Labs, a few companies have done it well, and we look to them for advice and, and guidance. But I think we can build another, a new generation where working remotely doesn't mean you don't get the sale. It doesn't mean you don't get the adventure money. It doesn't mean you don't get the customer. It doesn't mean you don't build rapport and morale. It means you work differently. 
And we're here to build the best version of Aurum that takes advantage of all of this and puts us in a place where people can lead a richer, fuller life and have a startup career, which is not always possible when you pair those two things together. So it's pretty exciting. That's that's super exciting. I mean, clearly you're doing so much of this right. Kudos to making, by the way, women we admire as top 100 women CEOs of 2021 list. That must have been pretty gratifying and speaks to some of those elements you talked about. But I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, certainly speaking from my demographic of MBAs that are, you know, about to unleash back into the world, there's such an emphasis now on, you know, mission alignment and committing to a culture that has representation and has, you know, rich, a rich set of viewpoints. And it's, it can't be ignored at this stage. So it's fun to be in the driver's seat where you can cultivate that future that you want to see. And I hope, you know, more CEOs follow a similar path. I could ask you a dozen more questions, Stephanie, but we'll leave some for our listeners' imaginations while we continue to follow Orem's progress from here. But how do you feel about doing a few rapid-fire questions to round us out? Absolutely. You fire Let's see what I got. All right. I hope you're ready. (laughs) Okay. So starting off, what do you miss most about being a financial advisor? Oh my gosh. I miss the feeling of helping someone realize they can do it. It's such a tangible impactful, joyful experience to see someone go, oh my God, I can get out from under this thing I'm worried about, or I can get in front of. And I still keep in touch with LearnVest clients. I had 500 clients at LearnVest. Wow. And many have become friends in real life. Um, and I, I think someday I will probably actually go back to being a financial planner. Like it's an evergreen thing you do. I stay current. Absolutely. But just, you just, you see this like, aha, that it can be done. Like, it's so cool. It's really cool. I love that switching gears entirely. I know you mentioned on Alexa's Inc. Founders Project podcast that eating a decent amount of ice cream is one of your life hacks. (laughs) So what's the go-to flavor? That varies often. Um, I usually go on like stints where like I'm obsessed. Um, I've been recently obsessed with a local brand, Longford's, which is literally in my town, and um, Oreo Bomb and Nutella Chip. But for those that are not in my town, um, McConnell's, um, which is based in Santa Barbara and available in most places across the country, I love the sweet caramel brownie. I love the salted caramel chip. And there is a peanut butter one that's like to die for. So wow. I didn't say anything fruit. I'm all things chocolate. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Very rich flavor profiles, but some now, now I'm getting hungry. Um, on the other end of that spectrum, I know you're a massive Whoop fan and you give a lot of credence to sort of a healthy lifestyle. I that nice. I love the white bands. I, I have the, the traditional black as my first band, but huge fan. So tell us about your record strain and what activity you were doing. Uh, okay. So I look at my data all the time and I'm going to look right now and tell you, I don't know if it tells me what I was doing when I got my record strain, but I have had my, I have 702 days of data um, wow. So I never take it off. I am literally obsessed. My average strain is 16.5. That's incredible. My all-time strain is 20.5 on a peak day, which probably means I went running. I also probably went hiking or something and then running around. And you were momming and doing all the other things. Yes. yes. And like... Love that. I can tell you last night, I did not get enough sleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's just so much data in there about how to perform better. Um, right. I don't take alcohol. I sleep more than I ever thought I needed to. And I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm better, happier, healthy, healthier than I, I turned 40. 
last week and and the whoop has been a huge Congrats. 700 days of making me a better person. Oh, amazing. Well, happy belated birthday that there's a lot of inspiration in there. I got mine much more recently than you. And I think again, as an MBA student, it's a little bit of just, it's like sadism for me to try to, you know, have a healthy lifestyle where, while I'm, you know, trying to do all the things here, but I I love that for you. I I will take you as inspiration and try to get some more sleep. It typically just tells me I'm overextending and and then I take it off for a few days because I'm, I'm, I wallow in it. Take it off. Drink more water. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Take it off. (laughs) Hydrating. I'm good at. Um, So moving swiftly along, who is someone else in fintech that you admire and think more people need to know about? There are so many people on that list. It's hard to pick just one. I think, you know, I'm really intrigued actually by uh, a company called Paceline. I admit I am an angel investor and Joel, the founder, is working on something that I think is going to be absolutely revolutionary. Uh, You mentioned the Whoop. I won't do justice to the, to the explanation, but they're the way they're thinking about building insurance products that are tied to health and well-being, the way they're thinking about pricing financial products that are tied to health and well-being and activity is very interesting. And they are on a tear, super proud of what they're building and just intrigued to see an intersection of sort of health and wellness and financial services for, frankly, one of the very first times. I love that. Well, Joel, if you're listening, we will be watching and and monitoring progress and and wishing you all the best. Finally, Stephanie, to close us out, how would you finish the sentence, I will consider financial health solved in this country when? American households don't have debt. Great answer. I think we'll leave it there. We covered so much ground. This has been a joy to record. So thank you so much. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thank you for spending the time with us today. We're really looking forward to seeing what's in store for Orem. And if you do end up publishing your work remote principles, we'll be sure to link them to the to the episode notes. So thank you so, so much. Enjoy New York. Hopefully I'll make it up there soon. But thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Sounds great. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the lively conversation. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or engaging with us on social media. It means a lot and meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners. If you're looking for more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. Here you will find interviews, articles, videos, and more content than you could ever ask for, analyzing and amplifying innumerable vantage points on the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Be well.